if you're at all familiar with the contents of Revelation 5, then you know there's really no way I can justify preaching the entire chapter in one message. Uh, not unless that message is going to be at least a couple of hours long. So this morning we're just going to camp out in Revelation 5 as our main text. We'll be looking at it in both worship services. So let's read Revelation 5, uh, the whole chapter. It says, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the back side sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book... The four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and has made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth and I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And every creature that was in heaven, and on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing, and honor, and glory, and power be unto him that sits upon the throne, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him, that lives forever and ever. When the writers of the New Testament set out to record the message of Jesus, their aim was to present him as Jesus Christ. The word Christ is the Greek word that means anointed or the anointed one. And that's actually an Old Testament reference. Back in the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, the word for anointed or anointed one was Masiach, or what we know it in English as Messiah. And so every reference to Jesus Christ is simply a reference saying he is Messiah Jesus. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise of God. And so it makes sense that as the New Testament writers point back to the Old Testament, they're showing that Jesus fulfills the promise of God's anointed one, the promise of God's Messiah. 
This is especially true for writers like Matthew and his gospel. He opens the New Testament and he declares the, the life and ministry of Jesus as that promised Messiah, Savior of Israel. And so Matthew refers back to the Old Testament a little over 90 times in his gospel. When Hebrews was written, the writer's goal was to present the Messiah, Jesus, as better than the angels and better than Moses and better than the Old Testament priesthood. He was saying, look, Jesus is just better. And the writer of Hebrews does that by pointing back at the Old Testament about a hundred times. But when the New Testament closes, when we get to the book of Revelation, Revelation, we understand it's future focused and the return of Jesus is in view. And so we might be tempted to think that of all the New Testament books, maybe Revelation is going to be the one that stops looking backward so much because it's just looking forward. But if we think that, we're wrong. The Apostle John receives this vision which assures us without a doubt that the Jesus who is coming back someday is that very Messiah Jesus from the Old Testament that had been long promised. Revelation has over 300 Old Testament references, more than three times as many as either Matthew or Hebrews. So our goal this morning in, in the first service is, is not going to be so much to try to preach Revelation 5 itself is to have a lesson that gives us some of the background for some of the Old Testament references that we read in Revelation 5. And to accomplish this, we're going to leave Revelation 5, and I'm going to do something that I very seldom do. I'm going to give you kind of a sword drill this morning where you are chain moving from one text to another. And so we're going to do a quick tour of some of the Old Testament texts that are referred to in Revelation 5. Start off, if you would, by going to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Now we could go back further than this. We understand as far back as Genesis 3, right after the fall that God showed, he was determined to save his people with a promised Messiah by by giving Adam and Eve that, that coating of skins in which they were clothed through the sacrifice of an animal. They were, they were provided a covering, and Satan at that time was, was cursed and told that I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and his seed, and it would crush Satan's head. But by the time we get to Genesis 12, there has been... Uh, a lot of sinful rebellion. There's already been a worldwide flood. There's already, in just the chapter before this, been the, the Tower of Babel where, the, where God uh, confounded the languages and caused the people to, to spread out, creating all these nations of the world. Nations exist because God made those languages and separated the people for his glory. And in Genesis 12, what's happening is he graciously reaches down into one of those nations, into a family of pagan idol worshipers, and calls Abram to be a kind of prototype of the faithful. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 7, The Lord said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from your kindred, and from your father's house, unto a land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. 
And I will bless them that bless you. I will curse him that curses you. And in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now there's a lot of specific promises there. Tony has covered this in adult Sunday school class recently. You know, there's these distinct promises of God. And in verse two, God's going to make Abram into a great nation. He's going to bless him personally. He's going to make his name great. He's going to be a blessing for others. He would bless those who bless Abram, curse those who curse Abram. Um, Down in verses six and seven, Abram's descendants are going to own this specific promised land. But in verse three, the end of verse three, there's this promise, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. This is known as the Abrahamic covenant. It gets repeated to Abram several times over the course of his life, especially that phrase, in you will all the families of the earth be blessed. It gets repeated in chapter 13 and chapter 15, chapter 17, chapter 18, chapter 22. Although in chapter 18 and chapter 22, the phrasings changed a little bit. Instead of saying, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed, you can look, for example, at Genesis twenty-two eighteen. It says, in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. All that repetition seems to make it the point that this is important. All those families that God had separated at Babel, establishing new languages and making new nations, they are, they are long removed from Abram, but they're going to be blessed by one of Abram's descendants. There's going to be the seed of Abram, someone who descends from him, who's going to be a blessing to all the families, all the nations that God had created through changing the languages at Babel. In fact, it seems Moses, his purpose in writing Genesis was to record that line of blessing because we see in Genesis 26 how Abram's son, Isaac, received the same message. Isaac is told, in your seed shall all the families of the earth, or nations of the earth be blessed. And then, then in Genesis 28, Isaac's son Jacob receives that promise and that word goes back to families again. In your seed will all the families of the earth be blessed. So all those tribes, all those families, given new languages, spread throughout the earth, made into nations, there is a blessing coming to them through Abram. This is not a promise to every single person, but it must include all kinds of people. There's a coming blessing for every family, every nation, all those languages, every kind of people, the promise of God that will be fulfilled in this descendant of Abraham. Okay, so, so tuck that away in the back of your mind. Because we're moving forward from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember that Jacob was renamed Israel. And so the children of Jacob, literally the children of Israel, that's where we get that phrase, ended up in the land of Egypt. They were driven there by a famine and protection as God intervened through the life of Joseph. And, and Jacob, as they're in Israel, and, and his, or as they're in Egypt, and Israel calls his sons to him in order to pass on this traditional blessing of father to son. Um, When Abraham did this, the blessing of God bypassed Abram's oldest son, Ishmael, and went to Isaac. 
When Isaac did this, the blessing of God bypassed the oldest son Esau and went to Jacob. And so now Jacob, Israel, is doing the same thing. Look at Genesis 49 with me for a moment. In Genesis 49, Israel calls his sons together in order to give them a blessing. And he starts. Verse 1 tells us that he calls them together and and addresses them from oldest to youngest. And the oldest son is Reuben. And he's addressed in verses 3 and 4. And he's told in verse 4, you shall not excel, which doesn't sound like a great blessing, right? But we understand in, in a study of Reuben's life that he had engaged in some sexual indiscretions. So he's not going to receive that promised blessing of God. The next two sons are Simeon and Levi, and they're addressed together in verses 5 through 7. Because apparently they were very close brothers. But verse 5, Israel calls them instruments of cruelty. And because of that cruel nature, Jacob doesn't pass the blessing on to them. But let's pick up in verse 8 where the fourth son, Judah, is addressed. Judah, you are he whom your brethren shall praise. Your hand shall be in the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you are gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? Within the blessing to Judah there so far, there's a few things to note. He's going to be praised by the other tribes of Israel. He's going to be victorious over his enemies. They're going to look to him for leadership. In verse 9, he is described as a lion. Right? Like a lion, Judah is going to strike fear in the hearts of those around him. And the idea in verse 9 is that he's as strong as a young lion and wise as an old lion. But verse 10 is where it gets real fun. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. What or who is Shiloh? If you read it there in the King James Version, it's considered a proper noun. They've, they've translated this as if it's a, a person, and I think they're, they're right there. So they've not really translated what the word means. They've just transliterated it to say, here's this name of an individual, Shiloh. But we know in the Old Testament, names mean things. right? So, for example, Judah... Israel just told Judah, you are the one your brothers will praise, which is a play on words because Judah, his name means to be praised. And so names mean things. And this Shiloh individual, this word Shiloh means the one to whom it belongs. Now, when you look at Genesis 49, verse 10 again, Judah is told that the scepter, like the king's staff, will remain with the tribe of Judah and the lawgiver, that's kings, are going to come from the tribe of Judah. They're going to remain with him until Shiloh comes, until the one to whom it belongs comes. And when he comes, the people are going to be gathered in obedience to him. This points forward to Jesus. He's that ultimate king of Judah's tribe. So that every king who came from the descendants of Judah were essentially 
keeping the throne warm until Jesus, the one whom it really belongs to, would come. So, so far we've got this promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob that the people from all those nations and families separated by languages at Babel, all of them are going to be blessed through a descendant of theirs. And now Judah is described as a strong and wise lion and Judah is going to hold the king's scepter, but there's one to whom that scepter really belongs and he's coming. So tuck that one away in the back of your mind. Because moving forward, all of this excitement about God's promised blessing and God's coming king seems to get lost for about 400 years in Egypt as, as Jacob is blessing his sons in Genesis 49, they're in Egypt out of kindness for Joseph and their honored guests of Pharaoh. But, but they remain there in Egypt and Joseph dies and that Pharaoh dies and pretty soon there's a Pharaoh that rises up who doesn't know them anymore, doesn't care for them anymore. Exodus 1.13 describes this. The Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with vigor, serve with violence. They became slaves in the, land of, in the land of Egypt. And in that oppression, God called Moses as a leader of his people in order to use Moses to, to draw them, to redeem them out of Egypt. And I trust that you're at least somewhat familiar with the story and the events of the Exodus. God began by sending plagues on the nation in order to have them release the children of Israel, right? So all the water in Egypt turns to blood. Frogs plague the land until there were just piles of rotting frog corpses at every corner. Lice and flies invade and overcame the land. Livestock were diseased. People and animals started to get boils and hail destroyed crops. Locusts swarmed in to, to eat whatever the hail had left behind. Darkness fell over the land for three whole days. Darkness, it's described as darkness that could be felt. It was so intense. And finally, Pharaoh was told that the 10th plague would be the death of all the firstborn of the land. Look at Exodus chapter 12. All the firstborn of the land would die, whether it's Pharaoh's firstborn or the firstborn of the Egyptians or even the firstborn of the Hebrews. But in order to protect his people, God gave the command for a sacrifice. In Exodus 12, you can scan through the chapter and see that description. In verse 3, speak you into the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. In verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish. In verse 6, the end of verse 6, says the whole congregation of the assembly of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they'll take the blood and strike it onto the two posts of the door and the upper part of the door of the house where they eat it. In verse 13, the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you. And I shall smite the land of Egypt. Right? God provided this sacrifice for his people. It wasn't their own plan on how they might save themselves. 
It was God's plan and how he would spare them from wrath. But it would take a lamb. It would take a shedding of that lamb's blood. Because only when God sees the blood of that lamb is he willing to to pass over, withhold his judgment from them too. He says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No doubt this is similar to what John the Baptist was thinking when he saw Jesus walking one day and pointed to Jesus and said, look, that's the, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Or It's what the Apostle Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 5-7 when he talks about even Christ, even Messiah, our Passover is sacrificed for us. The only hope we have to escape the certainty of God's wrath is that God himself would provide a lamb and that seeing the blood of that lamb he would pass over the judgment that's coming so tuck that one away in the back of your head and there's there's one more place i want to go to you can turn to second samuel chapter 7 we understand that god did deliver the hebrews out of egyptian slavery He did establish them as a nation that he had promised to Abraham. But then one day they rejected God's leadership and demanded a king. And so the Lord gave them a king after their own heart, right? He gave them Saul. And you know this was the king of their choosing, not the Lord's choosing, because his qualifications is described, well, he was the biggest and tallest and best looking and, you know, everything that people want. We also know that Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And God had promised his kings were going to come from the tribe of Judah. And so God sends his prophet to a house in the tribe of Judah, to to the house of a man called Jesse of the tribe of Judah. And he inspected all of Jesse's oldest sons and found that none of them were the ones that God had chosen. And, and the prophet finally asked Jesse, do you have any other sons? And Jesse's like, well, yeah, there's, there's one little guy, but he's out watching the sheep. His name's David. And that little David, soon to become mighty David, was the king after God's own heart. He was then anointed. He was an anointed. But he's also given the promise of the anointed one who would come. And so if God's covenant with Abraham loomed large in the minds of the nation of Israel, he's about to make a similar covenant with David. Abraham's seed was to be a blessing to all the families and nations and languages of the earth. And now God revealed to David as he's king that his seed would rule forever. In 2 Samuel 7, we'll just pick up at verse 12. When your days be fulfilled that you shall sleep with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you which shall proceed out of your bowels. And I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. 
And so there is the son of David. And understand, David is an offspring of Abraham. He is a descendant of Judah, those other promises that we just saw. And it's not just that the son of David is going to come and establish the, the house and kingdom and throne, but that the son of David is eternal because he's going to establish a house, a kingdom, and a throne that lasts forever. In fact, in verse 14, God says, I will be his father and he will be my son. We hear it, the, the baptism of Jesus and the transfiguration of Jesus, the voice of God booms down from heaven and says of Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Nobody but Jesus can claim to be the descendant of David who is truly the son of God. But, much like that glorious promise to Judah was made and then it seems to flounder because suddenly the people are in Egyptian slavery, we also find that this promise made to the family of David that 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 family is awaiting this eternal king and eternal throne to be established, but it also looks to flounder. David's son Solomon seemed like a pretty glorious king, but then it's all downhill from there. And eventually the nation is again taken into captivity and it has no king, much less the promised eternal king from David's offspring. And yet even as that happens, as they're taken from the land and and placed into captivity, the prophets and the Psalms never let go of this promise to David. Look at Isaiah chapter 11 for a moment. Isaiah chapter 11. I think this is the last place I'll take it before going back to Revelation 5. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Here's how the prophets held on to this promise to David. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. You know Jesse's David's father, right? There'll come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. By the way, we've seen a few times in Revelation already where it talks about the seven spirits of God. And I said, well, that's a reference back to Isaiah where Isaiah describes these seven aspects of the Holy Spirit. Well, Isaiah 11 and 2 is exactly where that's from, but that's even hardly why we're here. Verse 1 is what I want you to see. There'll come forth a rod out of the stem, or that word stem means stump. The stump of Jesse. Isaiah here is picturing essentially the family tree of Jesse, David's father, as if it had been cut down. It had seemed glorious at one time, through King David and King Solomon. But now, in this picture, all that's left is is a stump. The, The family tree has been cut down. And yet there's going to be a rod or a growth that comes out of that stump. A branch is going to grow from the roots. Something's going to come and rejuvenate this family tree, make it grow gloriously again. And surely, by the time the New Testament opens... That's what this looks like. It looks like David's family tree had had just disappeared, like it had been cut down. It looks like a a stump 
There's nothing, as the New Testament opens, there's nothing glorious about being a descendant of David anymore. The two distant children of David that we see as the Gospels open is that there is a a virgin girl named Mary who's a spouse to a carpenter named Joseph. They're no longer living in Bethlehem, the city of David. They're, They're far away when they do bring the child Jesus into the temple to make a sacrifice. They can't even afford the lamb that was required. They bring a couple of little birds. But that child that they brought was the promise of God to David. Before her conception, Mary was told in Luke 1, 30 through 33, the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb, and you will bring forth a son, and call his name Jesus. And he shall be great. He shall be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God shall give him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise to David that there would be a descendant of his that would reign forever. He, he is what Isaiah pictured as this, this root, the stem starting to grow from the, the stump of Jesse, right? The regrowth of that family tree that looks like it had been cut down. Cut down. Now, y'all, I know I've thrown a lot at you. But just to recap, just the four things we've looked at, and we could have looked at more, but just the four things we looked at. After God confounded the languages and created nations, Abraham was promised that God was going to use his seed to bless all of those families, all of those nations that had been created as a result of the language, the languages breaking and going out. Then Judah was promised Judah was proclaimed to be like a strong lion and like a wise lion and he would have kings that would come from the tribe of Judah until Shiloh, the true king, the one to whom it really belongs, would come and and gather the people in obedience to him. The Passover was established by God's design that only by taking a lamb and killing it and shedding its blood would God's people escape his wrath. But when that blood was sacrificed and seen by God. God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That, that sacrificed lamb is for the salvation of God's people. And David was given a covenant that a son of David would be the very son of God, that he would rule and reign over a kingdom and a throne forever, and that he would regrow the family tree that looked like it had been cut down. Now, I know that doesn't seem much like a sermon on Revelation 5, but would you go to Revelation 5 and read it with me again? Revelation 5. And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals and a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, 
the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as that had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song saying, you are worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred and tongue language right? And people and nation and has made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign over the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him that lives forever and ever. ever. Now, did you catch all that? Because honestly, I'm sure I didn't. The way that this book reveals Jesus is astounding. As Revelation points to this glorious future, you need to understand you have no basis for hope in what Jesus will do unless you see what it is in the majesty of what Jesus has done. What we see in Revelation As we read Revelation, it's not that God's like spitballing some quick ideas on how he's going to, you know, try to work everything out. This is the revelation of Jesus, who is his promise, his plan from since the beginning of time. And without that kind of firm foundation in the Old Testament of how Messiah Jesus would be unveiled throughout history, we're going to have a hard time as we read Revelation. Because what would happen to us is the same thing that happens to many people who read this book. We start reading about seals being opened and vials being poured out. And a great time of trouble like the world is never seen. And it all seems chaotic and it all seems fearful. But here's the Lord Jesus who's revealed as the victor over all history. And we know this is the certainty of the promise and plan of God that has been being shown to us since all the way in the first book of the Bible. Now, Lord willing, after Sunday school, (laughs) we'll actually dig into Revelation 5 and and preach the text and, and see what it has to say. But for now, I just want there to be clarity. As we read Revelation, it's not just pointing forward to the future. It's It's saying your basis for future hope is grounded in look at what Jesus is and what he has been shown to be throughout Scripture. Okay, 